Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Allison Durham, uh, exploring AI, software development, and the human mind. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much. Uh, so what is the human mind? <laughs> oh, wow. Right in. All right. Um, it's a, it's a fun place to, to be. I, I don't know if I found all the answers yet. Uh, <laughs> oh, what is it to you? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. And yeah, feel free to, to, to bring me any question I ask you. You can feel free to bring it right back onto me. So the mind, what is the mind? Right. Uh, the first time I've ever been, uh, quickly caught off uh off okay so we've got this mind it's different from the brain right there's the brain and then there's the mind mind feels like it has some sort of relationship that isn't specific to our our like our material consciousness uh what do you think about that uh i think i kind of generally lump brain and mind together in my own experience at least and then they're kind of in like this thinking realm to the side and then alongside my like present uh, and um, like, yeah, bodily human experience and, and self, I guess, kind of seem separate from that. So I don't know if I distinguish between brain and mind as much as maybe science or people do, um, but I do distinguish a fair amount between my experience as a, as a being versus the, the mind and, and brain doing their thing. It feels like that experience of being is fundamental, whereas the brain and the mind are not. Um, and that might be a somewhat controversial uh, opinion for a lot of materialists, uh, but I'm not a materialist. And, um, and so it's a sort of like the, it feels like without awareness, the brain and the mind are, don't exist. But then the question comes, what, what is the relationship between awareness and brain? And can the awareness exist without a brain? What do you think? Can the awareness think without, can the awareness exist without a brain? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I don't know about fully. Um, I'm not sure how that would look or what that would look like if it did. Um, but I think that uh, as someone who experiences a fairly dynamic range of cognitive range um i i think that awareness uh definitely can exist with quite a varying degree of of brain um so yeah because we go to sleep you know we go to sleep and then we then we don't have consciousness but the 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 indian vedic philosophers say that we do have awareness during sleep but it, there's no self-reflection there's no there's no ability to reflect on that awareness whereas in the waking state we have the ability to be aware, be conscious, and then also reflect that attention back onto the awareness. And that doesn't exist in sleep. Um, uh, do you, are you a philosopher? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. 
Yeah, something interesting that actually happened just this morning. Um, last night, I or this last Friday, a friend of of mine was asking me about um, my consciousness and how aphantasia affects it. Um, and if I see things and I when I dream and and that stuff, I thought a lot about a fair amount um, prior, but I haven't discussed with a specific friend. Um, so we went a little bit back and forth discussing that last week. Um, but last night, I actually had a dream because uh, I had discussed with him that uh, my dreams are fairly rooted in the real world. You know, I'm not on alien planets. I'm not dreaming of things that that I wouldn't see on Earth. Um, uh, but last night I dreamed of there was some type of monster. Um, and I with with aphantasia, I was telling him that as a dream, I'm seeing uh, I'm able to visualize very fully. I think it's uh, an H quite HD experience uh, on the higher level of what someone would imagine on on the perception scale uh, when awake. But that's only when I dream, and it's completely nothing when I'm awake. Um, but within this dream last night, I dreamed of this monster that was otherworldly, and I, it was it had a list of attributes that I thought were uh, strange enough, and I was aware enough to realize that. This is exactly a contradiction to what I just told him uh, Thursday. And so I like put a mental note where I was going to say, okay, I'm going to bring this up to him. Um, but the issue is, is that I put that mental note uh, in, in my head to remember this strange monster, but I put that in my dream state. So I actually had multiple dreams before I finally woke up and I had lost completely the, the memory of the monster itself and all the dreams afterward. And the only thing I remembered was the fact that I wanted to remember <laughs> Yeah. That that I experienced this and that I, I rooted that so that when I woke up, which I thought I was, I mean, I assumed I was awake when I was, you know, it felt when I was like rooting that, that memory, it felt just the same. Uh, but so what is, what is, uh, uh, aphasia? Aphantasia. Yeah. It's, um, so, uh, it's the classic, imagine a, a red apple in your, in your mind's eye, um, and being unable to to see one um, or varying levels of of less uh, vivid visualization um, is where aphantasia comes. And for me, I have I've talked to a lot of people about perception because uh, it's affected me quite a lot. Um, and uh, I have some people that I've talked to that are primarily primarily visual aphantasia, where they aren't able to have that um, imagery. Uh, but they kind of cope with uh, sound or touch or smell, and they can use those senses for creativity and kind of um, cope with the lack of visualization with those other senses. Um, but for me, it's it's all five senses, and it's all all five senses completely only in the eternal present do I get to experience them, not not any of them imagine imagining. So like my memories aren't tied to I can't think of what someone's face looks like. I can't think of what something felt like all of those things um hmm. and it, it i think it it's an interesting neurodivergence that uh, definitely affects the way i view the world so that's really interesting because i had and i continue to have a version of it it doesn't sound like mine is quite as strong as yours but uh i i up until about four or five years ago i did not i i only think in words i don't i don't think in pictures but then I started to get into some crazy meditation stuff, um, including this one method called Trataka, which you focus on the flame of a candle and meditate on the candle at night. Um, and it, it's supposed to increase your creativity and imagination in your, in your eyesight as well. Um, and, uh, and then all of a sudden I started to sort of train myself to see images. 
Um, and, and I remember the first one I saw it, it was totally a wild experience, like waking state, no, not dreaming, anything like that. And, and I, my, my, I was talking to a friend about this experience and then he, and then he's like, and I was telling him that I was training myself and he, and then he's like, uh, okay, well, what do you see? And then I, then I was able to accurately describe what I saw and I saw it really clearly. And then there are a couple of times after that, I started reading books, particularly by Philip K. Dick. Uh, who is uh, a wild author to have visualizations on while you're reading because his imagery is quite in in interesting. Um, and so there's this training aspect that I was able to train myself into it. But what you mentioned about all five senses completely present, because when you were s describing that some people see in images, or no, they don't have the ability to see in images, so then they imagine with the other senses. Is that an accurate representation of what you said? Yeah, yeah, I have a a, a friend uh, that that yeah that uses other senses to to yes imagine and uh, and and that makes me think that I've never I don't have those five senses either uh, and it's interesting to think about I can I can imagine someone's face now with that visualization thing but I've never played with the other senses incorporating those into my imagination. Um, and have you tried to train yourself on this? I have not yet. Um, I maybe we can loop back to that, and because I I have a lot more thoughts on it. But I want to touch on your uh, realization of the other senses. So most people I've talked to, um, people who do have regular in the regular range, which I would say is like you know able to recall memories commonly with um, images. Um, and all the way to people who can kind of um, play out scenarios in, mm. in, in their mind for the future in, in what would almost seem like a video-like state. Th that's kind of the range of, of image visualization. Um, but pretty much all of those people, I think, do have the other uh, senses associated with those. A, they're, they're often not as strong because we're such a visual creature. Uh, but, um, you know, if you ask them, what the railing of a staircase felt like, you know, they would be able to to recall that that feeling on on their fingers mm -hmm. um, of what the, the texture was, and um, and and then the same thing for, um, you know, beyond touch, um, but smell and and hearing and um and and then even the people. So then I've had some people who are lower on um visualization and and almost all of them you you might be the first person i've i've actually met who uh is limited in all of the others as well um, well so so as you were saying that that i uh once you explain touch that's the one that's the one that's my sense that's the most accurate i can very very well imagine uh touch um uh and it's part of the reason why i was a massage therapist for so, so long uh is because that sense in me is strong no matter what i have a strong linguistic capability I do not have a strong design aesthetic or visualization. And I think all those are kind of connected together, but I do have touch. I don't have smell. What about hearing audio? Yeah. yeah. Audio. I don't have that either. Um, and that's, yeah, that's really interesting because I've never thought about it. It's so funny that I trained myself to do visualizations, but I didn't train myself to how to do all those other senses as well. Uh, uh, which is totally wild. I think I can, I can now apply what I've learned about visualization to do those as well. Um, very fascinating. I think you definitely, you definitely could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's go into the training about it. What, what, what do you think about like, we could, 
take this into a conversation about skills in general and ha- like some skills they, oh yeah, we were, I was listening to this conversation that we had in our company on Friday and they were talking about uh, skills versus attribute, attributes versus values. Skills are things you can learn. Attributes are things that, uh, I'm going to butcher this, attributes are things that you come along with or maybe talents or something like that. And then values are things that are totally irreplaceable that come with you and you can't really, you can't, that are so fundamental to who you are that you can't change them very much. Um, and I think most people would say that that imagination isn't a skill. It's just like whatever I have going on right now in terms of my senses isn't trainable. Do you, but do you think it's trainable and what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so I think from what I've seen, number one is I, I don't like saying things aren't something, uh, especially if there's someone on the other side saying that they experienced it that way. Cause I just don't think that's very reasonable. <laughs> and so you're, you're not the first person who I've seen. I saw on, uh, you know, X a couple weeks ago, someone mentioned that this ability to, to train and, um, you know, they went into the detail of how they, uh, I think they did a similar candle technique. Um, so I, I definitely do think it is potentially a, a skill. Um, maybe not a one that a lot of people uh, chase after or train on, um, but but I definitely think it is one that that you know we have enough evidence to to say that yeah people have become better at it over time. Um, however, uh, so I think your your question was have I ever tried to to do that? And um, I think this answer will veer towards more will I ever try because um, so I think that. My my mind is, um, it's troublesome enough without visualization. Um, I'll just, I'll put it that way in the, in the sense that I, I think that having more imagination and having more going on uh, would just a- add a little too much for, for where I am currently. You know, so maybe at some point in my life, I'll, I'll have enough uh, free space where I can say, yeah, let me see if I can grab images up in here. But right now it's pretty full. And uh, yeah, I think I'm going to, veer on the side of not, not training that uh well and it's interesting because at that time period of my life where i was uh following uh those various random things that would come into my head i basically used google to teach me how to do uh meditation and and all these very very intense strange techniques that most people from any tradition would be like don't do that on your own you you need like a guidance to do this type of stuff and i was just doing it one after the other just like oh okay that's it's like a buffet i just do whatever i want and got myself into quite the the hole and um uh, psychically i guess would be the right word to say it uh where just like I, I i was i was doing things for a lot a lot of things for the wrong reasons uh and so like that whole time period was very stressful i was also under a medical uh kind of error issue that that um was very painful, very, very stressful. And that those visualization activities, active activities definitely stirred up a lot of stuff that I probably could have done in a, in a better way. Um, uh, so I don't, I think that the, the intuition there is probably accurate. Uh, there's something that I wanted to talk about related to that. Um, I mean, we could go into the mind is troublesome, uh, if you want to do that about some of the other things that are occupied your, your kind of uh, mental sphere. Uh, but I also want to talk about AI because I, I know you're an engineer as well. And I would love to talk about like your evolving thoughts on, on AI. Um, what do you want to talk about? Um, Ooh, uh, AI is always interesting. Um, uh, 
yeah, maybe saving uh, the the list of, of troubles in my own mind for a future time would be. Sure. Uh, so let's go to AI. Uh, what uh, you had, you had mentioned your you uh, and I don't hope I'm not kind of um, sharing things that shouldn't be sharing, but you had done a poll on 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 X about how uh, you were coming up with a new Rust uh, story or something like that. Um, and, uh, rust revolution, I think rusty revolution. Was that the one that I liked a lot? Renaissance. Yeah. Rusty, rusty renaissance. So what is rust? Yeah. So, I mean, rust is a programming language. Um, it's a systems level language, uh, that is pretty cool and has a lot of nifty features and really popular in, uh, web and, a lot of industries that uh, traditional systems languages, which are highly performant, uh, aren't, aren't able to reach the audience because they have a lot of uh, issues that Rust has tried to solve throughout its creation. Mm. Uh, so my my history is uh, not from that deep of, of a programming um, background. And so this uh, learning of Rust is would enable me to um, yeah, p- pivot to harder uh, development-based engineering instead of I've been from SRE and operations and that type of stuff in the past um, while keeping the the performance is something I, I really value coming from that operations background for learning a new language. So, uh, so there's a couple of different questions from there. Uh, what is SRE is the first one? Yeah, SRE is Site Reliability Engineering. Um, so... They are the people who keep production services of software online. Uh, basically, is what it is a lot of times SRE um, will use DevOps uh, philosophies. Uh, so it's basically the the job title associated with DevOps philosophies that kind of stemmed from early earlier Google um, uh, operations uh, and kind of fled through the industry from there. So things like um, scaling and uh, microservices and uh, availability. Uh, automation, all, all all those kind of guiding lights of of how to keep things online and stable. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, so uh, DevOps, what is DevOps? Yeah, DevOps. So that's you're going to get a different answer from that question from pretty much anyone you talk to. Uh, but yeah, it's it. I think the the answer I most align with is it's a it's a philosophy for for how to host software, like how, how to best host software and then also how to best allow your software engineers to get that software to production. So it's it's the twofold of keeping online and allowing engineers to do their best work to get it to production. Got it, okay. Uh, and can you, uh, so I know that Git, GitLab revolutionized uh, DevOps. Do you know how they did that? And if you don't know that, we can we can move on. But because I interviewed the CEO of uh, of um, GitLab back in 2018, uh, it was a fascinating interview, and I still don't know what uh, GitLab does. Uh, do you know what they do? Uh, yeah, so I mean, GitLab, I was a really big fan of uh, for a long time, uh, and so I, I'm not sure if I have enough industry knowledge going back to to how they revolutionized it, but. Um, I would say that they packed in all the the tools needed to to get that um, software engineer writing code to code running in production that's stable and basically creating that whole process in between and making it all in one platform. Um, Got it. I, th- I think and and making it open source and easy to understand. I think those things all aligned is probably where GitLab got a lot of its early moat from. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. 
Uh, and so we got DevOps, we've got GitLab, we've got SRE, uh, stability, run engineering, and uh, uh, site reliability engineering. Um, and uh, so what is, uh, uh, is it Replit? Yeah, Replit. Do you use Replit at, at all? Is Replit good in terms of DevOps? Can you actually use Replit to build software and then host it on Replit? Do you know? Um, so Replit is, is higher level. Um, so they probably use a lot of the DevOps philosophies to make it so that things are obfuscated for developers. So I think, uh, I don't use Replit a lot because I mean, a lot, a lot of my experience is, is knowing how to do things that a lot of these, uh, serverless and, and fast, uh, solutions kind of do behind the scenes. Uh, so I don't use a, a lot of those services, but I, I think Replit does a quite fine job for its market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was just a personal curiosity because I've started to use Replit because I have one of the problems I have, uh, I've been trying to get uh, AI to code for me. Uh, and I find that all of that DevOps stuff that you talked about, about getting it on the server or getting the server to play nice with all these different pieces, getting the command line to play nice with all those different things, all of that's in Replit and seems pretty straightforward. Uh, and so Replit has been, has been a way that I've been getting around all of those DevOps issues. Um, and now I would love to understand how, because I know that you're interested in AI and I want to understand, are you using AI uh, in your programming? And if so, how? Uh, yeah. So right now, um, I, I, I'm getting back into software. Um, and my, my programming isn't directly, uh, a goal towards AI right now. I think it's kind of a parallel where I have this far, you know, five-year plan of, yeah, I'd like to be at this point in my life. And, and, you know, I think, uh, company starting entrepreneurship, uh, and especially, um, AI, and there, there's a lot of, uh, things that I, I foresee for myself in my future that I really want to chase for, but, um, stability comes first. And so I think, uh, Rust is a very valuable tool that, that can definitely be used with AI. Uh, but for me personally, I'm using it as a, uh, a stepping stone towards the, the future. Um, so right now, no. Um, as far as one interesting thing about the, the Replit uh, doing DevOps is that, uh, so MLOps is this whole industry um, of getting uh, models running in, in production. And, you know, it has a different name right now, uh, which I think different companies um, might have different opinions on, but it it does do a lot of the, the same uh, things as, as S3 and DevOps. And it, it was interesting because that same revolution that I think we saw, you know, you interviewed CEO of GitLab in 2018, and that was a, a time where a lot of SRE and DevOps and uh, tooling was becoming more open source and becoming more cohesive and available and uh, really forming like a, a concrete, uh, like tech stack and, and uh, way of doing things, uh, a standard. And I think that as we go forward the next couple of years, we're going to see a similar shift in AI where, uh, and, and with MLOps specifically as well, we're going to see more standards being brought into um, uh, running machine learning in production. Uh, one big company that I would love to uh, sing my praises for is, is Cloudflare has done a really lot of cool things uh, with technology that uh, specifically for, for AI with their vector database and mm. running uh, smaller models at the edge. Cloudflare has a vector database. Yeah, their their announcement week uh, last week or the the week before uh, they they came out with a a huge amount of new things and uh, that really moved them to 
really what GitLab was doing in 2018, quite, quite, quite but frankly. Before for machine learning. For machine learning DevOps. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for, for running. So their, their solutions are, are fairly, fairly complete. So it's, it's not for machine learning DevOps specifically, but, um, for, uh, an option. So. I was as excited in 2018 for GitLab as a solution for solving my DevOps problems as I am for Cloudflare solving my AI problems right now. That's the best way to put it. What are your AI problems? Um, I don't love a lot of the vector solutions. So, I mean, that's one of the, the big ones. Um, uh, but alongside that, um, you know, DevOps, even though it's so mature and it's the industry I'm in, it's still a, uh, quite a beast to, to tackle. Um, and Cloudflare brings a serverless, scalable, edge-based um, option for, for hosting that not only supports um, JavaScript, but uh, can support any language with WebAssembly and including uh, this thing called WASI, which is a system uh, interface for running lower level languages like Rust. And so you can run um, these powerful languages in production uh, alongside the AI models that are running in the same data centers in the same ecosystem, alongside your data storage, because they have a lot of different solutions for that, alongside your website. They, they're just creating an unbelievably attractive developer uh, hosting product. Yeah. It's so wild. I guess we could take this into the philosophy, but I have a lot of questions about what you don't like about current vector solutions and what you do like about Cloudflare. Uh, but, um, it's so interesting, just in terms of software development, I remember when my uncle and, uh, you know, he was a software uh, entrepreneur uh, in the 80s and he built this big company and he's always, you know, back in like 2012 or 13 or something, he's like, Stuart, at some day, some point, uh, computers are going to code for themselves and then it'll be, all be over. Uh, 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 and so, uh, and just like thinking about you know, where, cause you, you, you said low level rust is a low level programming language. And the, to me, that low level means that it's closer to the machine. Uh, so as in, uh, uh, whereas a Python would be a higher level programming language, which means that it would be, um, more abstract, I believe, and easier to use because it's closer to natural language. Um, and then. But it just makes me think about, and then we've got vector solutions and hopefully the audience is, is, is following all this. I mean, if, if they haven't, they probably stopped listening a long time ago. Cause I do a lot of these interviews where I, where we go deep on these technical stuff, but, um, so we've got the, but it just like so much complexity and then something happens where all that previous complexity becomes normal. And then we have a new layers of complexity because all those problems have been solved so that there's a bunch of new stuff that happens. Um, is it. it and, and so like when now AI coming into it, like there's going to be more jumps like that, um, where things get really complex and then simplified down ease of use. And then they, they get really complex and then they simple, simplified. Is that an accurate representation? And if not, like, what, what am I missing or what did I, what could be added to that? Yeah. So I think it's a, a very accurate representation of the, um, the I ideal way that this problem goes. Um, and, and I think it's an accurate representation of how I would also, uh, like to see it go and, and how I strive for engineering to go. Um, however, um, I, I think the, the issue is, is that we never fully finish, uh, solving the old problem before moving on to the new one. And, 
And I've seen that time and time again, both internal inside of engineering organizations uh, where, you know, the, the priority shifts and uh, all of a sudden the, the new tool comes out and the, the, the roadmap changes and, and these things that were, were band-aids were supposed to be band-aids initially are, are not all of a sudden glue that's, that's stuck for the next however amount of time. Uh, and then there's also the issue of uh, different organizations working on the, the same problems. And that's one thing that I did really like about DevOps was this uh, open, more agnostic solution. Uh, however, <laughs> it has the exact same problem in that, in that things move so fast that you, you just can't, you can't ever solve a problem really. Uh, Unless you can't, yeah, you just can't really ever solve a problem. And so I think the reason why uh, I'm so interested in this lower level language um, is, and and the reason why, you know, uh, Zig is another low level language that's that's coming out that's um, trying to, it, I, I don't want to get into that, but um, I think the reason why there's popularity here is that uh, things that are moving slower, uh, like lower level, um, like slower industries, uh, and like infrastructure and operations, like those things are able to to be more refined uh, to get to the point of like kind of starting over. So imagine, you know, you you went to your first startup, you had a push for four years on a product, you learned a lot about what the tech stack you did like and what you didn't like. And yeah, things are new, but you also have a lot of insight for for even if you're using the same tech stack or decide to go elsewhere that you can you can know what mistakes not to make. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's the best case scenario is learning what not to do, but not that any problem is actually ever solved. Um, with with AI, one more time, one more thing. <laughs> with yeah. AI, it's a good opportunity where we can, uh, as you your uncle said, um, you can generate uh, code with these computers, and and so yeah, that's a great opportunity where you know if you have an experienced person who knows how to solve these problems and knows what they learned and knows what they want. Um, then you can utilize these tools to drastically accelerate to the point of satisfaction or to the point of contentness with solution. Um, and especially if those things are, are done in open or sh or the failures are shared, those are key to continuing accelerating um, others' work as well. Yeah, That's super interesting. Okay. So I, I guess I want to take it back to Rust because there's there's some reason that you keep on coming back to Rust as a lower level language. What does Rust do for you specifically that something like Python wouldn't do? Uh, okay. Uh, so the first is that I enjoy writing it. Wow. Uh, I, I, I kind of find myself in two, maybe three brains uh, sometimes, which is one is engineer solving engineering problem. One is um, planning engineering projects, you know, higher level uh, company strategy, like sometimes I'm in that thinking mindset. And then the third is uh, I care about the product and the customer and the people, and I don't really care about how engineering works. Um, and so uh, right now in my current position, I'm finding myself in 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 prioritizing brain one, uh, which is in the engineering. Um, and that brain can be fairly pedantic and opinionated. Um, and 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 that that brain really enjoys uh, writing good code and enjoys writing code that's uh, specific and accurate and uh, is able to do a lot of things that lower level languages do. Um, whether or not brain two agrees uh, at the project scale, uh, I think it starts veering uh, more and more. And then brain three doesn't care if you use Python or not; <laughs> it mm -hmm. wants to get the job done. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so. 
Uh, okay, so that and so Rust allows you to essentially uh, uh, solve engineering problems in a way that's very particular. Yes, and uh, very very fast. Uh, so I'm that's in this thing, okay. Leet Code group, for example, um, and they all use Python because it makes sense. It has easy data structures. But as I've been learning um, Rust, I started doing it. And so, for example, in Rust, the difference between me being in the bottom 10% of both memory and runtime was three milliseconds of execution and 2.4 megabytes of memory. And the, the difference, and then I optimized and tuned and got to the top 10%, and that was uh, one millisecond runtime. So there's still 10% more that got faster than one millisecond. And then um, 2.2 megabytes of memory. And so like, there's an extremely tiny gap because of how fast Rust is versus if you look at Python, you know, not only are you looking at tens to hundreds of milliseconds of execution, just for the standard solution, there's also that much range in performance of different solutions. Um, and the same with memory as well. Fascinating. Okay, so what is memory and what is runtime? Yeah, so, so memory is, yeah, good. Uh, memory is uh, random access memory. It's the RAM in your computer. Uh, I don't know how low to get your, your CPU. Um, has some some cache memory that it, it uses to to put things uh, pieces of information data um, is what we're putting on memory. So the the slowest form of memory is a hard drive where uh, the recording of this podcast will be and um, and you know the the app that someone listens to this will that on their phone will be using memory to to read the audio that I'm speaking to you currently into the buffer. Um, so memory is basically data storage, um, how much data storage, and it, it depends on what type of memory for how fast it is and, and how it's utilized. But, mm -hmm. and then runtime is just how fast um, an execute takes to run. So, um, you know, there's a thousand milliseconds in a second. So three millisecond runtime is three thousandths of a second to, to complete a task um, in that case. Okay, interesting. And so essentially programming then is you are, uh, using various languages to uh, automate the tasks and some tasks runtime is how how long each of those tasks take yep uh -huh. okay um and, and the memory is how much data is required to, from one to of store the, from one of those tasks basically or yeah so tasks can be yeah so um I don't know, let's think about like Spotify versus Tidal, the, 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 the quality of the audio, you know, Tidal might use a lot more bandwidth when you're on mobile um, versus Spotify has a, a lower, so that that's data compression, therefore using less memory. Got it. Um, or okay. using less data and that translates to, to memory uh, away from the networking stack, but. Interesting, okay. And you aren't using AI, you aren't using ChatGPT to help tutor you through some of these problems. Uh, when you enter a new field, you're not using AI to kind of strategize that, and you're not using AI in terms of uh, uh, on GitHub Copilot or or any of the other kind of uh, um, what's the other one, uh, Vercel or um, uh, for, I'm forgetting the name of the great ID, the great uh, IDE. I think it's cursor. Cursor, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're not using those. Yep. Two. Uh, so okay. So I use GPT every day um, for a variety of tasks. I would say it probably assists me with 
greater than 80% of tasks I do each day, including engineering. Um, I personally, I was in the beta or alpha or whatever of Copilot, uh, you know, in 2019, uh, late 2019, um, or no, 21. I don't know what the year is, 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I found that it didn't help me be a better programmer. Uh, it made me worse. And so mm-hmm. I stopped using it. Uh, and I still do not use anything in the editor uh, be, um, because I just prefer not to at this time. Uh, however, yes, I, I use GPT heavily uh, yeah. for both learning, um, strategizing, and and doing as well. Yep. Oh, interesting. So you do get some code from ChatGPT. Uh, like, do you, do you ever plug and play from like you you get it to print you out a little bit of code and then you put it into the code base at all? Um, I, I definitely would do that. Yeah. Um, I think normally I use it as a a troubleshooting buddy. So I say, you know, I, I basically structure the problem in my own mind. And so, yes, it, it could technically generate all the code or maybe 90% of the code, but there's a heavy amount of thinking that I I put into it to, to get exactly what I want. Because again, if I'm in brain one, there's a lot of opinionation. Yeah. As far as how that works. Uh, so that you're, you're using it as somewhat of a rubber duck debugger, basically. And for my audience, rubber, rubber duck debugging is a, is a, is a concept or a, a method that programmers often use. They have a rubber duck on their, or whatever on their, on their, um, uh, desk. And they say, they tell the rubber duck the problem and it's it just speaking. The problem allows them to think through the problem, even though that the rubber duck isn't, isn't live. I've definitely been experiencing that. That's how I use chat GPT, not specifically for programming. Uh, but for any problem I run into, right, it's just like the fact that I have this thing that stim- stimulates human intelligences, uh, and then also actually gives me a very good answer often to the problems that I'm facing. It's just like so wild. It's just such a crazy time we're living. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely wild. And uh, yeah, I I think uh, it maybe is a, a step further than a rubber duck, but maybe an evolution of the rubber duck. Uh, <laughs> in that, yeah, all I have to do is communicate. And a lot of times communicating can, can help me solve and, and maybe the answer it gives me doesn't help me solve, but just having an output, uh, be able to reword or, uh, summarize, you know, just have, having something back from my mind is extraordinarily useful. And then just getting something out in the rubber duck situation is also useful. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so now I'd like to talk about automation and what it means. Uh, like I I'm so interested in, in, in. The, well, I'm so interested in AI, but AI is not the same thing as automations because there there's artificial intelligence and then there's automations. And the reason why I'm asking this is because at the at the company that I'm working with and the company I'm building inside of the company that I'm working with, uh, there are where we do intelligent automations, but we actually have humans in the loop. So we have the humans do what the humans can do, and then we try to automate a lot of the process tasks and such. And so I'm trying to think through this business problem of how do you automate these complex series of problems. And there are all these like low code and no code platforms, but what I, what I'm trying to figure out is like, what doesn't like be, an engineer doesn't need to use those low code and no code platforms. Well, actually, that's a good question for you. Do you use no code or low code platforms when you're building solutions at all? No. Uh, yeah, like, I think you're... if I'm, you know, I mean, I, I've definitely, I'm aware of them and, and, and know their value. And I think if I got to the stage of uh, being more in. Uh, brain two or three, which is a building company or focusing on, on customers, then I definitely would consider it. Um, but I think brain two of like 
choosing engineering decisions and choosing that type of stuff and then being in it as well. I, I haven't personally used them though. Okay. And that's, so that's interesting because so with brain one inside of these engineering problems, how much of that is automations or what is automations, I guess? Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So do you consider Zapier and, and pay what, what are the others, uh, the alternatives do you find those to, to be useful in the automation? Yeah. So what they allow me to do, uh, not yet, cause I'm still wrapping my head around them. Uh, they they allow me to connect different pieces of software together. So let's say that I have a form on fillout.com or let's say on typeform.com. And I want to, every time that form is, um, is filled out, then I grab the email address from that. And then I take that into Zapier. Well, all this is happening inside of Zapier or make, um, and so email from fill out form, grab that, connect it to my email client, send off a welcome email, receive back an email, syn synthesize the email, you know, do all these steps basically that are repeatable. Um, and that all have to do with certain business problems and stuff. And so what I'm trying to understand is like engineering itself, uh, um, how much of that is just uh, designing solutions that automate the problems that you're experiencing in a way? And how, like, well, and if it's not that, what are the other things that you're doing when you're engineering? Okay. Uh, so I think the first thing I'll touch on is, uh, the, the engineering alternative to those automations, um, which I mean, so Zapier and the alternatives, I think they're extraordinarily useful. Um, and I've definitely, yeah, yeah, I I'm aware of them. I don't know their names right now, but I'm aware of them because of how useful they are, uh, but at the end of the day, they are just uh, calling two different pieces of software, normally via APIs, um, and doing one action with one and another action to the other. Um, and then in, in the middle, is there there's some type of logic to, to say what to do between the two steps. Um, and so uh, from an engineering perspective, that's a pretty simple um, problem. Mm -hmm. And that all you have to do is is, is call one API. I mean, you, you have to know how to call it. You have to have the right authentication. Uh, but if you have the right authentication and you know how to, then you should be able to pretty simply work with the data. And then once you have the data, um, it's the same thing on the other side. Is once you know the authentication and, and blah, 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 then, then you're good. And so I think that um, automation is probably where I started my career uh, with in, in IT, uh, working, you know, the official uh, title was like help desker or whatever it was. But I mean, every, every day I was, you know, started writing PowerShell and, and started um, making it so that anytime someone asked me a question, I, I wouldn't have to think about it um, because I could just run a, run a script and, and have that uh, problem done. And so, um, yeah, on, on the engineering side, uh, very much, I think it's, it's not challenging to uh, automate as as long as your complexity is is smaller. Zapier comes becomes boundlessly uh, more and more and more valuable the more different integrations you use with it. Um, but beyond that, with engineering, yeah, because then if you think about you know a, a new library or a new bug or you know you have to start managing the problems that Zapier ha handles for you. So if you if you're on a two way street where you just need two different things. And like, I would say, don't use Zapier 99% of the time. Um, but as soon as you're at eight or 15 and you know, you're dealing with like uh, large sales organizations with Salesforce and Pipedrive and you're 
integrating all this data and you're doing it at the same time as a data analytics company, you know, that that gets to a point where you literally don't have the internal resources to handle the amount of complexity that's coming at you. Um, And so there's so much value for for those type of services at that level. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Uh, How do you think AI will change that world, if at all? Like, do you, will AI change? Well, and there's another question here I wanted to ask, which is related: is how hard is it to you for you to get up to speed with an API? Like, can you just uh, go in and understand an API within 15 to 30 minutes, or does it take you three days? Did it take you like three weeks? Yeah, I would say it's pretty fast. Um, so, I mean. In the in the olden days, uh, in your in your uncle's days, it might have been quite a drastically different problem. Um, but but nowadays, most APIs are, are REST APIs. A lot of them follow a, a specification of some sort, and a lot of them specifically follow one called Open API, um, which is uh, a thing that enables a standard format for APIs to follow, um, specifically REST APIs. That and so. You know, a lot, pretty much all of them you can guarantee or you, you can know that they'll use JSON, which is a certain data structure. And then you can you can know uh, they, they use a certain type of authentication. And you've seen all these problems before because you've worked with APIs over and over and over again. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would say it's pretty simple to get up to speed. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you said Rust API. Is that the same thing as the Rust programming language or are those the same name that have been applied to two different things? R-E-S-T in this case. Oh, rest, not rest. rest. Yeah, got um, it. Rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. That's very interesting. Uh, okay. So now let's take it to the, to the question of how will the machine learning change that API infrastructure and will it make it easier? Will it make it harder? Like what's, a, a, what's AI going to do to this fact? And particularly with that open API thing. And I love it that there's open AI and then there's open API, uh, two very, very similar names in that. And uh, like, uh, do you think, uh, what's the effect going to be there? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I think an API, uh, at the, at the internet and networking and, and, you know, a consumer consuming a, a software level does look like a rest API that traverses the, the network layer and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I mean that, that interface is an application programmable interface is what it stands for. And so, um, you know, that exists at, at all levels of, of the stack. And I, I, I suspect like, yeah, there, there might be new innovation, um, as far as how we interact with, um, language models or other, uh, AI, you know, m- maybe it's not a network call that gets a JSON data back. Maybe it's, um, you know, there's, there's one called like guardrails. There, there's, a, there's a couple different libraries that are working towards, uh, restructuring, um, how you call language models and, and maybe maybe that'll look different. But um, yeah, I, I don't see the pipeline changing a terrible amount. What will likely happen is that um, the, the complexity will happen behind the API call so that just as simple as it is for me to consume regular software now, it'll be the same for AI where, um, you know, I, maybe there's a bunch of logic going on in the background with, with multiple different AI models and they're all crazily doing complex things, but at the end of the day, I'm just asking a question and getting an answer back, just like a regular API. But will the, will me as a non-technical person be able to interact with APIs using machine learning? Do you think that that will change? Like that it'll become easier for me to do that? Uh, I mean, you already probably could, if you take what you're 
with i mean with with gpt and anything if you you know if it, it has all there's a single specification for open api but gpt4 knows probably 90 percent of the services specifications and you can you can just ask it to generate boilerplate in whatever language you want and then you know if you get an error of authenticated then you just hand it back and say hey i got an authentication error <laughs> can you write a, a step that logs to my desired platform you know it's i, I think that's probably already already easier now yeah interesting yeah it really reminds me that i should probably just spend 15 30 minutes a day each day playing around with gpt and and seeing if i can do some of these things and learn about authentication error one of the main things that kind of overwhelmed me with the with the, even the zapier was uh, and make was just like get notion connecting notion with another platform there were just like 10 to 15 different data sources that i needed to parse just not parse technically but parse my my own self uh to understand what is all this stuff and like what's the thing that i actually need it's like very very complex uh, stuff and i don't know how you how you do it um, yeah yeah i mean maybe instead of asking the question uh of how to um do do the task or that you're looking at maybe the the question is is how to uh better explain the complexities that Ooh. you're you're unsure about um, because I, I think especially I, I use GPT for a fair amount for uh, psychological or um, like personal reasons. Um, and a, a big portion of that within, you know, psych psychology field in general, if we take out the AI equation is being able to, to figure out the, the next baby step and figure out what's actually needed instead of what's being complained about. Um, and that's something that, you know, a, a therapist in a professional setting is extraordinarily valuable for is, is narrowing down the, the yeah. thoughts in your head into what's the next baby step and, and how can you better understand what's, what's happening um, and, and be able to accept it. And I think that's the, the same approach that you could take with these type of problems and the same approach that language models generally excel at, which is um, how do I prioritize figuring out this next baby step and how do I understand it better? That's a good, that, it feels like that could be a, a, a come, do, come learn either therapy or programming uh, by learning to take the next baby step with ChatGPT would be an interesting workshop. Um, okay, cool. So, okay, we talked about a lot. Well, let's, let's, I mean, let's talk about five minutes, five, 10 minutes left. We don't have to get any personal details, but what's your, uh, what's your favorite psychological framework? Uh, I don't know if I... Um, let me ask you sure. yours as well as maybe a definition of, of what a framework looks like to you. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, okay. So interesting. Um, I mean, I've heard of CBT. I, I'm sure I've done CBT at some point. I've done, I did a lot of therapy. I don't do, do much therapy anymore, but, uh, 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 I guess, yeah, if you include some of the more woo stuff, somatic experiencing by, uh, uh, Levin by, uh, Peter Levin. Uh, and, uh, that is one framework that I really like. Yoga therapy is another one. Massage therapy is the one that I still is, is, a, uh, is an active daily part of my life, but that it has kind of mixes with somatic, uh, somatic experiencing as well. The Peter Levine thing the, but the, the question you're asking about what is a framework, what does it mean to be a framework for psychology is a very interesting one. Um, for me. Outside of the psycho psycho psychological lens, framework in general 
for me implies kind of like a set. It's, it's like when somebody offers you a framework, what they're offering is the ability to see things from a, uh, a different angle than you're normally seeing them. So CBT, I actually don't know what CBT, let's go somatic experiencing. Somatic experiencing posits that most of the suffering that you experience is sort of trapped bodily energy in the same way that an animal has trapped bodily energy. Well, if you, after, if you watch a tiger versus a um, gazelle and the gazelle escapes from the, the tiger, uh, after the gazelle escapes, it does like a shaking move. And so, and so Peter Levine uh, saw that and he started giving that to his patients and encouraging them through a set of techniques and methods to offer them ways to let go of that stuck energy inside of the body. Um, and so that's what I would suggest as a framework. What do you think about that? Yeah, uh, that absolutely makes sense. Um, so I, I think I've struggled to align with general solutions to, to really any concept or construct most of my life. Um, and that probably applies to, to frameworks for psychology as well. However, um, one thing I've definitely gained the most from is, uh, a lot of mindfulness based tactics. Um, I think that, um, being able to be, be aware of, of your, your thoughts and, and your surroundings and your, and be, be in the present, uh, is extraordinarily helpful for being able to to stop and and listen to that that brain mind um, and be able to to act accordingly uh, it with the the self um, with whatever it needs and I think it's extraordinarily hard no matter what um, type of framework you utilize uh, to be able to take the right action uh, for that framework without mindfulness um, at at its core to be able to to know that you need to take that action. Um, yeah, mindfulness is super interesting. Another it's, it's, it's like a framework, but it's not really a framework because it, it's, and it's somewhat related to meditation, but again, meditation itself is like a framework, but it's not really a framework because it points to something that it, it, from my understanding, it points to, uh, that basic awareness that we were talking about earlier and, and like the self-reflection of the awareness, the fact that you can turn the awareness back in on itself and be like, oh, instead of this object that I'm looking at, or even the object that's inside of this body, uh, this pain or whatever, instead of looking at that, you can then look at the person who's seen that. And then you realize that, 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 that person that you think you are is not at all who you are. And there's such so many deeper, deeper layers to it. Um, and so I love, I love mindfulness. I love meditation. Although I think there's a lot of miscategorizations and miss, um, kind of, uh, a lot of people don't understand it. And at the same time, it's hard to understand. Um, uh, so, but as you said, that take the right action mindfulness allows through that self-reflection of awareness, uh, the ability to see oneself as a sort of third party, um, I think is very, very valuable and, uh, definitely, uh, pretty on board with what you said. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I've definitely seen benefit in other specific ones, depending on the problem, you know, I, and, and, and I think those are extraordinarily dependent on what an individual uh struggles with specifically um and so it, it's harder to to say and, and even me i think you know i've had multiple different like sources of, of issues um and yeah i think mindfulness is probably the only one that's like really helped all the whole whole picture uh, whole stack. yeah 
<laughs> the whole stack. Yeah. Full stack mindfulness. That's that's a great name for a uh uh a That's a uh, fantastic name. Yeah, full stack mindfulness. Uh uh great. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, how can people find out more about what you're working on and your interests and get in touch with you? Something sparked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am Adjective Allison on everything, adjectiveallison.com uh, and X and all sorts of places from there. You can check me out. Great. Thank you so much, Allison. Have a great and uh, have a great day. Thank you. You too, Story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.